You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. A, uh, a tshuva, uh, which so far as I can tell is undated um, in the database of Israeli, uh, Israeli, but uh, Israeli, uh, but it didn't And I'm going to tell you up front that it's likely that this tshuva will make you very upset. I'm going to tell you that up front. So here's here's the case. Um, right, so a particular woman, she wants the Beit Din to free her from her being an Aguna. After her husband, whom she married in a way which the court assumes is uh, unbreakable, you can't challenge the marriage itself, in an official Israeli uh, rabbinic system, and he's gone, and is no longer present with us, Right, he he left immediately after the wedding. Taking with him all their wedding presents. All the people, all the searches after him, produced nothing. According to her opinion, it's became clear to her that her husband, who's a not an Israeli citizen, who I'm not sure how to pronounce this word, nochel. Uh, right, it's a criminal, Nochil Sidrati, a serial criminal. Shekvar Kamapalim Nasana Shim Bechuslaris. He already several times married women in Chuslaris. Bechasunos Mifuarot in beautiful weddings. Benelam Lachara Chasunot Dimamatanot. And immediately, each time, he disappears after the wedding with the gifts. Barila, right, it's clear to her, she's absolutely certain. Had she known about this, she would never have married such a criminal. Magam um not only and not only that, look, according to his habit, right? He in fact disappeared immediately after the wedding, right? So it's not enough to say right, there's two issues. One is, had she known that he would disappear right after the wedding, she wouldn't have married him. Uh, right, as far as it, it sounds like the wedding is not uh wedding is not even consummated. Um and secondly, suppose he would stay with her, but he's still this, you know, this scum. So uh she right, she makes both claims. A, I would ne- if I had known his history, I would never have married him. And B, anyway, I didn't get really, I didn't really ever get to marry him at all. Uh, but she didn't know anything because he lived abroad. Um, okay, so that's our right there. So the question he's asking, and this is the the question that raises so much, um, you know, so much contemporary controversy, is can you undo uh, a marriage on the claim that? I know for what I know now. If I if I'd known then what I know now, I would never have um, I would never have married him. We call a mekach It's the equivalent of a transaction in which you were misled about the uh, about the merchandise. So all the questions, you know, the standard questions are raised. Uh, right here, are the questions. Uh, right, what's the standard under which you can, in a commercial case, invalidate a sale on the grounds that right, that you were misled? Uh, what happens if there's something that was known in the place of the seller, but the buyer doesn't know about it? Does right. Do we say that the that the buyer it was known in the place of the seller and the buyer didn't know about it? Does the buyer have an obligation to do due diligence? Um, and the presumption is that you investigated since it was knowable, or do we say that no sellers only have an obligation to do due diligence in their own place and not someplace else? Uh, and maybe that changes because of the internet. This I think is a I, my suspicion is that this truva is old enough that simply googling a person was not likely to yield that kind of result. Uh, right then, right grant. Granting that, um, that that this is the kind of case that would meet the, uh, we know the standards for Mechach Toh generally, 
and we assume that that it's not, that the possibility of claiming Mecca Toad is not eliminated by the fact that it was known where he came from. So, right, do we think that uh, that women would never marry a uh, a serial criminal if they didn't read it without um, if they didn't know about it? And then, right, what about the specific case where it's not just a serial criminal, but it's a serial criminal who left it right before right be left yeah, as soon as the condition was done with all the gifts. Okay, we're not going to go through all those the, all the issues in detail. We will note that one oddity is that it seems that there are four judges uh, writing true vote on this panel. There's uh, Rabbi Avram Levine, Rabbi Mordechai Eichler, um, Rabbi uh, Chaim Shalom Dom, I think, and Rabbi Yeshua Weiss. So let's start with Rabbi Levine's uh, tshuva. So he goes through all these issues in order. That was his outline. At the end, he says, in a manner where it becomes clear that the husband is a serial criminal who left immediately after the wedding with the right, with the gifts. In such a manner, she didn't have a husband. She didn't have a husband even for a moment to stay with him, even for a day. Right. So the the halachic argument that is usually made against a woman's claim of mekach ta'ut is a version of a statement tavlametav tandu, which implies that at its extreme version, you know, that you could you could make the argument that it that it meant that even a momentary marriage with a terrible man would be enough if you actually got some kind of physical pleasure out of it. Let's leave aside whether that's a plausible reading or not. Here she didn't even get that. Right. So he says, look. In this case, right, she, right, so he says, So whatever your arguments are for uh, for saying that presumptively women would agree to a marriage, that doesn't apply to this case at all. So you can say that all the uh, all the standard controversies about whether you can apply mekaftoed for women don't apply to this case. Because for this kind of husband, she would, there's no circumstances under which this woman would have agreed to marry this man. Um, and look, you can't write the fact that she didn't do everything she could to find out in the United States doesn't mean that she forgave it. It just means that there are just, you know, people don't really consider that possibility. Okay, so now we're great. It sounds like it should be Mutter. And then he ends. Unless we say, like, I think it's Rechaim that he's talking about. So there is this svara that maybe kedushin is an act of the man, and therefore the man can put conditions on it. But women are not active in the kedushin role, and therefore they can't put conditions on it. This is a very strange idea, which in um, in other trivot is you know, mentioned and discarded. But here he mentioned after after going through all doing all the hard work of establishing the case. He then says, unless we say like the Grah, and and if we hold like the Grah, so then women's Ta'ud can't invalidate the condition that way. And it requires investigation. That's a really weird way to end a chuva about Naguna. Sarachyun is the same for women as you're trapped. Um, and it's just so weird that he does all this work, all this work. He does really all the hard work. Right? It's not hard to reject the claim that women can't put conditions on marriage, right? Many, many tshuvot have been written uh, establishing that I mean, there are people who take that position, but it's not. It shouldn't be the roadblock after you've done all the other work uh, that he's done, right? You know, to get rid of tablemetav and to establish mekartos in general. But that's what he does. Okay. Um, then we get a, a second, uh, a second shiva, 
um, which I think is from Rav, um, Rav Shmuel Chaim Dom. Here's what he says. Regarding what my my friend the Av Beit and Rabbi Levin wrote in terms of Bittel uh, Kedushin because of Mekachtos and all the Achron about this, take a look at the book Beit Yaakov to Lagon Rav Yaakov, and since so written here Yaakov Harif Yosef, there's a whole debate. This is Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, the famous first chief rabbi of New York. So we take a look in the work in the Beit in the book Beit Yaakov. Uh, who was the, the he was supposed to be the first chief rabbi sorry, of America, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef. Right? Many stories explaining about why that failed. Um, and it was previously was the Magid Mesharam in Vilna and the Talmud of Gunner Israel, uh, Israel Salanter, right? So this was a major figure, which was reprinted in 5762. Right? So this is an esoteric book. Amut Tafsamach. So in the back of that book, there's a story which sounds a lot like our story. And nobody there ever raised the question of Mekachtos, even though it's the case. That sounds just like our case. So instead, what they do is they validate after with great difficulty and only if there's no other choice, a get that the husband gave a long time later, which had a mistake in the name of the woman. Right, a get has to have the name, the names precisely. This get had a mistake, but and they come up with a right, with a very difficult argument to validate the get. Right, but right, but nobody ever raises the issue of mekafos in that case. But no, Simon of Nimbaza and the people involved in the case were Hagon Hanal. That's Rav Yaakov Yosef. Chen Hagon of Moshe Zivitz, Av Beitin of Pittsburgh, the Chaber of the Sefer Mashbiach on the Yerushalmi, uh, which includes a wonderful Askama from the Chavos Chaim, right? So this is all being built up authority. The Chen Hagon of Yitzchok Lachan and Zelon, Yitzchok Lachan Specter, who is the um, who is the um, you know, the the Rabbi for all Aguna issues in late in the late nineteenth century. So his argument is there is this story in the. Um, there is this story in the uh, in this book Beit Yaakov, where these three great figures of the late 19th century, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, Rabbi Yitzchok Hanan Specter, and Rabbi Moshe um, Shmuel Zivitz of Pittsburgh, all engage with a case just like ours, and they never raise the question of Mekachtos. So obviously, the case of Mekachtos is uh, the case of Mekachtos is not um, is not relevant. So he's going to tell you, look, here's the case. Can you decide? What the case is like. This is the name of the question. The previously mentioned of Shabtai had a had a sister, and her name was Shprinza. Boston, Mass. Okay, and the, and the sister of this man named Shabtai, uh, his name Shprinza, and she she was a servant in the house of a man in Boston, Massachusetts. The cuffs al yad three hundred dollars biday achiha reb Shabtai, and she gave three. She collected three hundred dollars and gave them to her brother, uh, Roshaptai. So he gives the money to me to do chesed, but he's not giving it to Mitzdaka because he's holding it for his sister. He's right. He's using. He's saying you can use this as a cash reserve for your free loan fund, but you're responsible for the money because I have to return it to my sister. And one day, this Roshaptai who gave me his sister's three hundred dollars to use. 
uh, for various festive purposes, but not to use up, comes to me with a young man, very handsome. And he is learned in all fields, right? He, not only, right? he knows all sorts of professional fields. Shaltiv, Mama Seya Beresazot. So ask this man who's you know, along with Rav Shapta. I don't know why. What are you doing? You know, what, what are you doing this land? And he said to me, "You maskir be office a millionaire Carnegie Hayadua. He is a secretary in the office of Andrew Carnegie, presumably. Uskaro fifty dollars l'shavua, and his right and his salary is fifty dollars a week. Now we are, uh, we'll discover afterwards, we are somewhere around the year fifty six fifty. So we're in the right, we're in the um, 1880s, right? Somewhere, uh, some right. This is being written in 1888. Um, the case may have happened sometime before. Uh, we're in Pittsburgh, right? Which I think is where Andrew Carnegie um, is headquartered. Um, so this is all a reasonable thing. And in the midst of the story, a young woman shows up. Shows up and he says, This is my sister. And this, that should not be Lashem, right? And this, right? And this, uh, this boy, this lad, he's her fiance. And I stood in shock. As handsome as he was, she was the opposite. So Rabbi Zevitz looks at it and he says, this seems to me an unlikely marriage. Here you have a young man who's, you know, who's, has all the skills and he's amazingly handsome and he should have a I guess a um he should right he should be able to pick whoever he wants and he marries someone doesn't seem to be up to his style. Okay. immediately Krovimpo, right? Of course obviously you know he, he could be missing something and right and Rashabta's sister could be the most amazing person on earth and maybe he's missing you know maybe his taste is different but Rabbi to this point is comfortable with his valuation but he wants to check. So I asked the young man, do you have any relatives here in Pittsburgh? He says, no, I am alone in the world. And he said, a month. So I turned and stage whisper. I guess I don't know to Rav You better check after this young man a lot. You better investigate thoroughly. I think he's one of these wicked people who who plan to catch Jewish women in their net and leave them in the chains of Igun and to steal all their money. Okay, couldn't ask for a clearer warning than that. Amnam, But this Ramoy, he had really, right, this trickster, he had, he had charm. Uh, verbal charm, and so he overcame my uh, he overcame my claim. And in the end, I had to do the I had to do the wedding. And I said, I want to take invalid deliberately. I want to take invalid witnesses. I want to deliberately create a way to invalidate the wedding. So that I would have space to. Um, to permit her after he abandons her. I did not succeed in doing this. Either I told him explicitly or he figured out, or he just looked at the witnesses I was picking and, and he said, look at that guy. I know that guy's 
uh, professional gambler, right? And that one's right. And that one's uh, that one's a, a mobster. The the cider conditions. I had no way out. I had to do the wedding. And as I imagined, happened. The next day, the husband disappears, and nobody knows, and nobody knows where his footsteps are. And now there are days and months, and his sister comes crying to her brother, saying, "Right, why didn't you listen to, to, to the rabbi and to his warning?" Okay, and then you can look at the tshuva of um, the tshuva Harizgalchanan, and you'll see what he wrote. Okay, so this is um, this is an utterly amazing thing. Uh, this is an utterly amazing thing. First of all, the the, the case is um, the case sounds wild. Um, it seems pretty clear to me. It's not exactly the same case um, because in the case here in uh, in that Eredamis Sinai nineteenth century case, there is very clear warning. Right, the rabbi says to to the man, and I would assume I think it only makes sense. He says it not only to the man, but he says it to the daughter. Uh, he says it to the sister. He says, "Look, this guy is a trickster. He's just planning to take your money." And they say, "You know what? We're accepting the risk." So it is a given, right? That you can't that there you can't undo a sale if you know the risks. If a known risk turns out to happen anyway. Right, because all sales are made under risk. Right, you can't say, "I, I made, I, you know, I bought this cow on condition that it wouldn't die a day, or it wouldn't die, you know, crossing the road, being hit by a car a day later," because you know that's a risk, but you assume the risk. You can't retroactively undo it because of something that right, that you knew about and uh, accept the risk, right? Even though it wasn't what you wanted to have happen. So this has no comparison at all, um, on the surface, at least. To the case that we have here, where um, in our case, the woman doesn't accept that risk and accept, I guess, in the sense that, that all people getting married assume the risk that their spouse has some kind of hidden criminal history. So that this woman accepted the risk tells you nothing about whether, in a standard case, you should assume that women are accepting uh, are accepting such a risk. So there are two weird things about this um, about this truth. One is this is a very odd basis for um, for rejecting the claim of the claim of mekachtos. Um, very odd basis at all, right? This story, which doesn't seem quite so analogous, uh, and then this Rabbi Levin's shuva, which was really odd, which just ends b'tzarech yun. And um, you know, and what kind of what kind of shuva is that? That's a that's a very odd thing. So you're going to engage in my um, Utterly wild, uh, utterly wild speculation, and then we'll go on and do the the really fun part of the um, The utterly wild speculation is that um, sometime later, in um, 2014, I believe, uh, the author of the first part of this tshuva, Rav Ram Dov Levin, forms a an ad hoc beitin. He seems no longer to be a member of the Rab- of the rabbinic system at this point. Uh, with two other rabbis, uh, Rav David Bigman and Rav Michal Avraham, who are not usually his ideological soulmates, and they publish a responsum um, to permit a woman to remarry, um, even though the the official Beitin system is not uh, is not handling is not 
has not been willing to issue her a heter. Now they at the time they released the Truva, it, it turns it seems to be a moot question because at that point the husband has already given a get. Although it seems that the get he's given is questionable. So you know, I start to see the analogies to um to the case cited by Rabbi Dom. Um and here's the thing. The case the case that they're dealing with is a case that the, the case that, that Rabbi Levine issues the Heter is a case of a young man who marries a um, who marries a um, a woman and then disappears the night after the marriage with all the wedding gifts. But a lot of the other details are different, um, or at least there are lots of details that aren't in the story we have in the Rabbi Nud case. Um, first of all, there's a question about whether he's Jewish at all. Um, right, because there's his mother. His mother converted, and her and her conversion can certainly be uh, can certainly be challenged. He himself uh, identified as a Christian, and so it's not clear whether he could really intend right, intend to marry halachically necessarily. Um, there are many, many other complications about the case. One of the things that's interesting about the case is that at least some of the rabbis who sign that heter, and actually it's three rabbis each writing a heter on completely different grounds. Uh, Rabbi Levine himself bases it largely, if I recall correctly, on the invalidating the conversion. Uh, but the claim is that the Beitin system had mishandled the case and shown a certain amount of cowardice because instead of simply deciding the case, they had allowed minor legal issues to hang them up, and so they ended up not making decisions which, of course, the, the, the rabbis say that not making a decision is just as bad as making a decision to forbid her. Um, and so there's, right, I think particularly in Rabbi Abraham's Shuvah, there's a, you know, there's a claim about the, um, the mistaken, you know, the lack of shoulders, right? People who are involved in these kinds of issues, you can't say, oh, I need greater people to, to pass this on to. You have to make the decision yourself. So that was very interesting because uh, here we have a case just like it in which, um, what does Rabbi Levine do? He does exactly that. He just leaves a case with Sarah Ian. So it's really very challenging. So I, I wonder, okay, here this, this is this is a, a wild speculation with no basis. Um, I have asked um, and I have not had confirmation. In order for this to be true, it would have to be that in either the formal report of the Rabbanut or in the private truva issued afterwards, some details are fudged. But I wonder if it's not the same case. And if it's the same case, I wonder if Rabbi Levine's truva here ends B'Tzarech um, Iyun for a very particular reason. Um, I think it's known pretty much that there is a way of gaming the Beitin system. Uh, and that's... And and the way of gaming the Beitin system is that if you are in the if there's a majority if a majority overrules a minority, so then there's a verdict. But even if you have a three-person panel and two judges vote one way and one judge says I can't make up my mind, so that hangs the panel. A Beitin can't, can't finish until all the judges issue a ruling. So in the standard way in which Bate Din function, the United States, right, where each party picks one side and often Often, if you in an unregulated system, each party will pick a judge who is, understands their job really as being your lawyer. So you always have one judge who's going to be on your side, and if that judge is corrupt, so then what he'll do is just say, 
uh, if it looks like the verdict is going against him, he'll just say, okay, I will, uh, I can't make up my mind. And that way, you know, that way, you know, the person who has the corrupt judge can never lose. So in practice, you should only go to a Beitin that requires you to sign a, uh, a formal arbitration agreement in advance. And part of what, and part of the arbitration agreement will say, because you're allowed to do this, is to stipulate that the Beitin can reach a verdict, even if one of the judges refuses, uh, refuse, re- refuses to, to reach a decision. So we, we stipulate against this possibility. But it remains the case on the books that there is no ruling, even if a majority of the judges reach a decision, as long as one of them says, I can't make up my mind. So with that, my speculation is, crazy speculation, is that in the case in front of us, Rav Levine made it very clear what his decision would be, but realized that he did not have a majority of his panel and so if he allowed his panel to go to a vote, there would be a precedent on the books that had ruled that this Aguna could not be freed by, uh, could not be free, could not be freed, certainly not by Mechaftawit argument, um, and maybe not at all. And so he maybe deliberately hung the, um, deliberately hung the court and left and ended the, ended the B'Tzorachiyun so that, um, so that he could, um, so that he could come back later and form a private Beitin and issue a Heter without uh, without having to go against precedent, just claiming, you know what, the previous court, even though it included him, uh, was too cowardly to make up his mind, and now we get to make up, uh, now we get to make our decision. It's possible it's a different case, and that it's just after the Rabbanati was free and he had a whole list of cases. Uh, some of you who uh, had you know, misbegotten news like me might remember that there was once a truly terrible television show called Hardcastle and McCormick. Don't raise your hand if you know about it, uh, which involved the conceit of it, aside from lots of fast cars, uh, the conceit of it was that there was a, a judge who was really a stickler for law, and so he had to let a whole bunch of criminals off on technicalities. But once he retired, he was going to go off and track all those criminals down again if they had ever committed a crime. Uh, they ever, they ever a, uh, committed a crime again. So maybe Rabbi, Le, Rabbi Levine, I, think so, I don't know if it was Levin or Levin, I think it was Levin, but maybe it was Levine, uh, who I think I think is no longer with us uh, was Nifter, but I'm not sure. Uh, I think that um, another possibility is that he just had a list of the kinds of cases that had enormously frustrated him when he was on in the Beitin system, and so when he retired, he set out if he found other cases like them, he would correct them. So that's my wild, that's my wild speculation about um, about what happened. That you can take it or not. What I want to do with the remaining time, and I'll take questions about everything at the end. Um, and as always, you know, I'll, I'll stay as long as necessary to answer questions. Uh, I want to do the the tshuva that um, Rabbi Dom cited. And I, you know, I don't know, you know, if I were really extreme, I'd say Rabbi Dom cited it to show that you know, how absurd he thought the whole argument about Mechavtos was. Um, but I'm not. I don't really don't know enough about that. It was, it's. I am grateful to him for having sent me to this tshuva. So I'm just gonna read along the whole narrative with you and then at the end of it the question i want to ask you to ask yourself is um do you i guess the question is like how much of this narrative was necessary for the tshuva and if the a lot of this narrative is not necessary for the tshuva you'll see it's a lot more than what everybody dumb cited so what was this what is this purpose so here's the narrative story happened as follows in the year 5650, this is Rabbi, Rabbi Moshe, Moshe Shimon Zivitz writing, a man came to you from New York by the name of Shabtai Fronovitz. 
And he asked me to be his friend. He came to me to the Carvo, right? Not to make me from, but to be my friend, right? To be close to me. And in the process, he gave me a letter from a Rav who I know, right? Who's famous, Rav Meir, Rav Meir uh, Ficus. Ficus. And they're all, right, they're, they're both alums of the yeshiva in Slobodka, which is the, right, the yeshiva, uh, the, the, the great yeshiva of the time. And right, the letter writes, of etc., etc., right? So, right, so right, I ask, I ask the, um, I ask, right, ask you to show favor to this young man. So I said to him, come with me and I'll buy, right, and I'll buy you merchandise on credit and you go be a peddler and may God be with you. But he says to me, Khalila, God forbid, I didn't come to you with a letter from a rabbi say so he would give me money. All right, I have two dollars in my wallet, and that will be enough for me to buy and go right to buy to, right, to go sell. Just the only thing is, every day I am just so exhausted from business that it's hard for me to learn. So what I want from you is I want you to have a chavrusa of me every day. That's all I want from you right, out of this friendship. And it happened, and we learned with him, and I learned with him every day when he comes home. Right. Um, but it's obvious, you know, that he's not making a lot of money and he barely been able to feed himself. But now all of a sudden discover that right, he's constantly groaning. Why? Because he has a wife and a daughter and he can't send them anything. He can barely support himself. It's not his wife and daughter. He still won't take any money. And so many times we tried to give him to give him help, but he refused to accept help. And now what happens? His father-in-law sends his sister here to their relatives. Right to right to her family, and says, "I want you, you my relatives, and I want him to divorce. I want him to divorce my my daughter." And his and his relatives come to me with Roshaptai, and his wife is standing at his hand, and his daughter was only two years old, right? She's holding on to her father's hand. I asked the wife, "Why are you coming to me?" And she says, I want to accelerate. The second and third person are always shifting this narrative. I put it in quotes, but it's it's framed in, in uh, eventually in third person. I came here to get divorced. So I said, why do you want to get divorced? And she said, so she said, my husband can't support me. And her husband, the Shafte, says, Cain, yes, he's holding his two-year-old daughter's hand. Um, it's really hard for me to be separate. But this poor, this poor woman is starving, right, suffering the shame of hunger. Oh, how great! Alas, So I said to him, my friend, this is Rabbi Sevet speaking. The two of you, two of you, come tomorrow towards evening. But if Torah come late again, we'll write you again, because even though it's very sad, you both want it. But I, Bezrat Hashem. With God's help and with the help of all the, the kosher slaughterers in town, a dollar. We collected thirty dollars. Remember, he had two dollars in his wallet. And we rented them. We rented them a house or rented them a place to live. And the, and the next evening, the next day towards evening, it was fully furnished. Like you know, burgers. You know, like really, like you know, middle class people. Um, and they had, and they were stocked. Their their pantry was stocked for thirty days. The kasher bow late Arab when they come back the next evening. We said, you know what? We gotta go. Right, we gotta go somewhere else for the get. And we take them to the apartment. And when they come into the room, 
right, sorry, right, they're, right as they're walking in, they think they're there for the divorce. Their faces turn white. Like people being taken to jail. And we, right, but we all come and like 20 people there and there, there's a set table and we eat and we drink and we tell them, all right, you know, you can join in, I guess. When it comes time to bench, we tell, we tell, we tell Reb Shabtai here, you lead benching. And then the then we tell them the secret, this is your apartment. And we give the woman the $30. That, um, and guess what? Not only that, we found him a job as a teacher in the local elementary school. And we found out that this woman was a right, was a sheitel mafer. We found her a job too. And all of a sudden, the man starts to live. And he sees great life with a with a woman he loves. And nowadays, he's worth. Now he has $30,000 in cash. Okay. Great. Now we're in, all that is completely missing from Rabbi Dom's narrative. Now we go into Rabbi Dom's narrative. Right? Sister Shapta has a sister. Her name is Shprinza. And she took, has an, has an English name, Hedda. And she serves in, right, in the house of this man in Boston. Right? But that was also missing, I think, from the uh, from Rabbi Dom's um, Right, Dom's narrative, and she has these three hundred dollars in her shop size things, and he gives them to me to do chasadim, and then the story, right? and then the whole story happens with the uh, with the son-in-law, um, with the son-in-law showing up. Um, except we missed the story, we missed part of the story. Let's pick it up, right? So I tell her shop that you better check after this guy, because in my eyes, this is he's one of the wicked people who spread their nets. They all they all say goodbye. And they leave the house together. And a day later, Rav Shaftai comes to me and he says, all my relatives are claiming that you stole my sister's money, you don't have it. Um, and you know what? It's true. Right? Because he, he didn't ever expect it to be called in at a moment's notice, so it seems. And as soon as I heard this, I ran immediately to the short-term lenders. Right? So for Vezivitz, Apparently, right, it's probably going, you're racking up money on his credit card here. But he doesn't, he doesn't want his integrity credited, so he goes and borrows the money, it seems, and puts the money in and brings the money out for him. And I tell him, I think, reading between the lines, the reason you're saying this is because your uh, your son-in-law wants the, to be, wants to make sure that your wife's money is in his hands so that when he abandons her right after the wedding, he'll have money. I tell you, you better be careful. I'm telling you that your sister is going to be left in Aguna by this man. But, okay, he, over, he, over, he overpowered right? So that detail about the money is missing from Baidam's routine. And then he tries, as we said, to uh, uh, we said to um, to fake the wedding by using invalid witnesses, and he, get, he can't do it. And now, all gone. Okay, what happens after all gone? Now, days and months pass. As we said, right? And and his sister is is crying to Rav Shabtai. Why didn't you listen to Rabbi Zivitz's warning? What does he do? Well, he apparently doesn't think of hiring detectives, or he doesn't. It doesn't work. But he also does skulot rabot. He goes to lots of rabbis and he asks them 
or supernatural aid, some way to to force God or right or to force the husband to give the get in some way that other than even if you don't know where he is. So he goes to lots of rabbis or miracle workers, and one of them says, "Do this." And one of them says, "Do this." And he does everything they tell him to do. None of it does any good, and the husband is still missing, and the sister is still in Aguna. But when he realizes he has nothing else to do, then he finally comes back to me. Because you can imagine, it's kind of humiliating for Rabbi Shapta to show up and ask this rabbi for help, because this is the rabbi who told him, right, you're an idiot, this man's going to make leave your daughter in Aguna, what were you doing? Your sister in Aguna, what are you doing? And he finally shows up my house, and he cries, and he says, like a rabbi in Israel like you, the chief rabbi of Pittsburgh. Why haven't you given me a schula so that her husband will come and divorce her? If I'm guilty, why should my sister suffer from my sins? I think the correct text here, even though we have right, the text we have is but I think it should be tzakti. I cried. Ukrativ and I called him a complete idiot two or three times. And the text we have is Bechad, but I think it has to be Bacha. But he cried and said, right, with an oath, Chayani you know, Khan, by, by, by Hashem, if I'm going to leave here, I'm not going to leave this space, right, try the Chonia Magil thing, I'm not going to leave this space. I need you to give me some kind of supernatural power that will force the husband to give the get wherever he is. Okay. Rebbe says, look, I'm not going to hide this from you. My, my soul desired to make fun of him a little bit. And I said that I would give him uh, I would give, right, I would give him a school of a lawyer and he would get nothing out of it. It's not sure whether he's clear that whether he said this is what he said in his in his heart, right? I know if I decided I would give him a school, of, but not one that would help him, or I, or he said to him, "Look, I'll give you a school, but it's not going to help." So what do you do? He says, so I took my pen. I wrote a long prayer. Right? In the end, it said, "Let may God put in the in the in the mind of this husband to give me a uh, to give her a get." Now I say to Rav Shapta, you better memorize this tefillah. Uh, right, you have to put, take this, the written version, now that you've memorized it, and put it in your chumash. And it should be facing up to Parsha's Kitetse, which has the Pasuk, right again. And put the chumash in, right, in the Aron, right, with the Sefer Torah, in Shul, Yavosh, uh, sorry, Uvein Sha'achat Lishtayim, and between one and two in the morning, I think it's in the morning, Yavosham, come to Shul, Be'achnis Rosho Baron HaKodesh, and put your head in the Aram, Uvemar Nafsho Yivkev Yitzchanein Lithnegadosh Baruch Hu, the Tefillah of Rab Alpeh, okay, and, right, and say this Tefillah, right, you know, crying, say this Tefillah that I, that I, that I force you to memorize. And I said, look, this is nonsense. But he's not going to do it. And then, but then he has to leave my house. Right, I'm going to gain. Right, because he's going to have to leave my house because I gave him a school. And he won't do it. So what's the big deal? But I was wrong. 
Didn't happen that way. A couple of weeks pass, and guess what? Rav Shapta gets uh, gets caught as a thief in the night in the shul. Because why, why are you coming in the shul? One o'clock in the morning, everyone's assuming he's there. And not only that, you're going into the Aron, right? So what would you assume if somebody shows up in shul at one o'clock in the morning and sticks their head in the Aron, they're trying to steal the silver? So everybody thinks Rav Shapta is a thief. Uh, and I asked him, why, do you get caught as a, why, why would you get caught as a thief? And he said, look, I'm just doing what you told me to do. But he says it's hard because everywhere I, everywhere I go, people are watching me because they think I'm a thief. Right? So this is very hard for me. To, this is very hard for me to take. But um, but uh, but but nonetheless, he says, even though now I have now I have you know occurred communal communal shame because people think I'm a thief, I am not stopping. And every night I go I go to shul right I go to shul to um, to ask right to to ask for my sister to. Uh, Asked for my sister to um, to have to get a divorce. Okay, so now Rebbe doesn't know what to do. You know he's doing it. What to do? So a few days after this, or months, whatever it is, whatever Yamim means, I'm leaving Pittsburgh for Cleveland. And I stay there for two weeks. I come home. As my leg, as my legs stand, step on the threshold, and right, and my my wife comes out to give me the great news. Rav Shabtai's sisters get us here. And so the get comes from Baltimore, and here's what and it has a letter, and here's what it says: A man came to me and he said. He can't rest because he knows that he left a woman in Aguna in Pittsburgh, and his spirit, his spirit throbs in his in his in his uh, in his internals so much that he can't right, that he can find no no peace for his soul during the day and at night he can't rest, and so he's begging the rabbi, you must you must write me a get for my wife in Pittsburgh. Right, so look, the school of work, right? You know, this is that Rabbi Zivitz gave a school and he thought he was joking and he thought it would never happen, but it happens and it leads to public humiliation and now there's a get. So he sends it, right? Everything should end happily now. So he sends a message. So the rabbi in Baltimore sends a, uh, hurriedly sends a message to, uh, to, right, to me. Send me the name of the woman so I can write the get. But remember, Rabbi Zivitz is in Cleveland. So I wasn't home, so my wife got the message. So Shalcha Ishto Achar Ish Muflag I may have got it right. I think it should be Ishti, but um, it could be Ishto. So either the Rabbi Baltimore's wife or the uh, right or the wife of Rabbi uh, of Rabbi uh, Zivitz. I, I in the English version I wrote this week, I wrote as Rabbi Zivitz's wife, maybe I'm wrong. Uh Sprinza de miscaria etta, um, right? And so the the so scribe in Baltimore wrote the name of Rav Shabtai's sister, Sprinza, who is called Etta. Bechalif shem Etta al shem Heda. But he got the he got the name wrong, and it says um, she was her name isn't her English name wasn't Etta, her English name was Heda. The Chasher Yeshavti l'sader get. So now I Rav Zivitz, I have the get. He sent it back. He sent it back to me, and I'm trying to arrange the get. So I ask, right, I go to the proper form, and I say, 
uh, what's her name? And she says, my name is Hedda. Vanuchel and this criminal Kfarazavadir Baltimore. He's already gone from Baltimore. What am I going to do? Well, I guess he could give Rav Shaftai another school up, but that doesn't seem doesn't seem like you know he really believes the supernatural things works really well. So Marty asadera to get. So I said, you know, I'm going to arrange to get and the I'll have the man's agent from Baltimore give her the right give her um, give her the get, or maybe right could be the man in Baltimore appointed the appointed Eshliach uh, in Pittsburgh. And then after I give the get. Right, so I said, at the end of the story, I would ask Rabbi um, for um, for his opinion, and this is Rabbi Yitzchak Tshuva. Okay, we get Rabbi Yitzchak Tshuva. Right, Rabbi Yitzchak Tshuva is just about a woman who is called Heta. He has Heta instead of Heda, which is a little bit confusing to me. Um, you, you know, if you pronounce Hedda really rapidly, they sound the same. But on the other hand, usually you get it would distinguish between Hedda and Hetta. So, right, so you know, the T's and D's are very hard to uh, pull about. Uh, so he, he writes a get, right? Isha uh, Shnikrais Hetta, Vichasu beget Etta. And then there's a secondary issue, which is not a issue. Uh, right, he writes he writes the Truva to Rav Yaakov Yosef of New York. So it means that. Uh, Rabbi Zivitz really sent it to Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, and Rabbi Yaakov Yosef sent it to Rabbi Yitzchokhanan, so it seems. And he says, right, I got the, um, I got your, right, I got, I got your letter through yet another party, um, and you asked me to talk about this, right, to talk about this question, right, so Rabbi Yaakov Yosef sent it to Rabbi Yitzchokhanan, even though, I guess Rabbi Zivitz was looking for, um, for the, uh, for someone to send it to him, um, right, so about this get that is asked by this, the Rabbi, of uh, of Pittsburgh, the Shema Ish Heta, right? He has it as Heta, the Chasu beget Etta, um, right? And right, that's the issue. And and um, Rabbi Yochanan writes a really astounding tshuva. He says that there is an, a famous case of um, a woman who is na- right, who is uh, right. Her, she, there are people named Sarah, and there's uh, a nickname which is Saraka. Um, and the question. What happens if somebody is called Saraka? Right, that's the name she's given at birth instead of Sarah. But when it comes time for the get, they assume that if her name is Saraka, that's just a nickname, and really her name is Sarah. So they write Sarah by mistake instead of Saraka. So there is a position that says that that's okay as long as right um, Sarah. If you write Sarah, even though everyone in the, in the end you discover that her name at birth was unquestionably Saraka, kasher is fine. Kevan da kol So kol seems to mean that they have the same vowels. So you can recognize that Saraka is just a, right, a nickname for Sarah, and really Sarah and Saraka are the same name. That's a radical position. Right, it's another one of Al's Guta as opposed to Gutlin. Uh, right, and which okay again. We're talking about names that are similar. It's not clear whether Heta and Etta have the same relationship, and even whether Heta, to me, whether Heta and Heda are necessarily the same thing. But Rabbi but Khanan says, it seems to me, right, even though initially he said, I thought, I thought initially that all the doors of Heta were excluded here, because this seems like a classic case of changing her name. In the end, I realized, no, it's just like this case. And look, Heta and Etta have the same vowels, and Etta is even part of 
Heta, so people should be able to figure out that Eta is really Heta, and so he kashers again. Okay, that's the whole story. Now, my thing is that um, you would never have gotten any of this from Rabbi Dom's um, citation. And that citation makes it, you know, it's a fairly straightforward case. There's a, you know, it looks like it's the same thing. There's a trickster. He runs off after the wedding. They don't mention Bekachtos. And every, right? And so they don't mention Bekachtos. They must think it's not an option. So already pointed out, that's not really the case because in, right? Because it's a key point. Although Richard Dumb does mention that, that um, he warned him, right? So they, they deliberately accepted the risk. So my question is, how much more do you understand? Right, this is an incredibly rich narrative, uh, right, with amazing twists and turns, right, you know, and heroic interventions, right, you know, and you know, and, and their suspense moments, and right, and their places where different parties have acknowledged, right, they, right, because you don't tell them, they don't walk in for the divorce, and you tell them, oh look, we're going to prevent you from divorcing because we're giving you lots of money. You take them, thinking they're to go into the divorce, and then you run a meal, right, for just delay, right, just delaying purposes, like Esther's first suda, and it's only at the end of the meal that you tell them that right, really this is all for you. Um, right, which is which is similar to another famous story, right, where uh, right where you mechabed the husband, and that's how you prevented with a with a with a party, and that's how you give them the divorce. Um, and you have right, and you have the the irony that I gave him a skula, which I didn't think would work. I was just making fun of him, but it does work. Um, you have the whole background of the issue where he's right, where Shabtai becomes rich through his help, and then demands the money back um, and forces him to borrow money. All this flourishes. So that'll leave you with a question, right? Why does Rabbi Zivitz write such a long, detailed tshuva? Does it affect anything halachically? If it doesn't affect anything halachically, um, so why would he write it? Um, and is there anything you can learn from here about the way in which either Rabbi Zivitz or Avram Dov Levine or Rabbi Dam approach, um, approach Aguna cases? Um, I'm gonna, I guess I think say the biggest shift is Rabbi Dumb's citation sounds like, well, of course, we would have used Mechachtos. We have this forced device for a get, you know, but, you know, and really, you read the Tshuva, what it sounds like is, right, and, and I think this is correct, that nobody uses Mechachtos if they have a get. And, you know, by the time, and I think that it's right, you know, by the time, by the time, I guess what I'm really interested in is how, how should Rabbi Zechachanan react to this whole long story? Does he react to it by saying, well, look, she knew what she was getting into and it's her fault? Or do you react by saying, oh my goodness, this poor woman you know, got bamboozled by her, her lunatic brother. Um, but we don't want to blame her lunatic brother. Her lunatic brother is obviously a tzaddik. But her brother is a tzaddik, but he's the kind of, you know, I often think, right, tzaddikim are dangerous, right? He's the kind of tzaddik who, right, you can't deny his dedication but his dedication is the kind that leaves his wife and, and daughter to starve in Europe because he won't take charity. Uh, but he's at least living in there, right? And they're suffering, right? They're suffering from hunger and he has enormous sympathy from her, for her, but not enough to take stucca. They have to trick him into taking uh, into taking stucca. And he's a generous man, but he's also somebody who can be driven in the heat of the moment to force his rabbi right, who saved him from poverty uh, and, or I guess, um, and who... Um, um, and you know, and, and uh, actually, it doesn't say property. It's rabbi who agreed, who learned with him for all this time, listened to all the suffering, and he's willing to put him on the right. Event, and eventually, I guess we're going to say that right. He's he eventually he event um he eventually he um right he uh, he's willing to put him you know in a, in a in a really awkward position 
and convey suspicions. I think what you get, you get is, a, is that it's not the sister's fault, but these are also not people who are scamming you in any way, uh, right? These are people who are good people who we should try to rescue. And it might be if there was no get. Um, I guess it's clear that Rabbi, um, that I don't, I don't, I, I would think would agree that that Mechaptelos wasn't the case here because they accepted the risk explicitly. So I think that's probably right that you get out of sympathy here is you get you get a, a lot of sympathy for the sister and understanding of how she got into it and the way she got into it is not because her family is bad people they're all trapped. But the other really interesting thing, of course, is that Rizimus comes out as a hero. Uh, right, he's the one who saves the marriage. He's the one who warns them about it. He's even the one who, right, this marvelous situation, who gives the school that works, even though he doesn't believe in schools. Um, so it could be that the whole letter is a, uh, the whole letter is a really important um, part of the, the risk, just say whatever the case, right? You have to understand the whole case to know what's going on. And a right, dumb citation creates a false parallel by not really realizing what is going on, um, right, that, right, um, in this letter. The other possibility is that uh, everyone knows you send a letter to with an aguna. If there's any possibility for a hetter, you're going to get a hetter. That's his job, right? He's a vian He was, you know, I don't know what you know which one you're, with how you how you deal with the relative stature of such great figures, but for lack of a better term, he was the revadio of his day. Um, right? All the aguna shilas went to him, and you knew. That if there was any way at all, he would be the one to give the to give the hetter, and he didn't need a sob story. He just needed somebody to say, "This is an aguna, and you're the one who can free her, so please do." Um, could be that. In that case, so why does Rabbi Zimitz write this? So the other thing I'm going to say, right? This is the other you know, wild possibility. Um, there are questions in the Shleidu Shavuot Chavot Yair, which are this kind of this kind of drama in them. And in the Chavot Yair, I suspect, and I'm not the first one to suspect it, that those are all Chavot that um, he wrote the case. And they're all, they're, they're all in Chavot in which, the, in which um, the details of the case are fundamentally irrelevant to the Halacha. Uh, right? The case I've t- talked about is where, uh, you know, where the daughter of, of the richest man in town falls ill and with an, with a contagious disease, and nobody's willing, and nobody's willing to um, nobody's willing to uh, to nurse her. So one of the serving boys says, "I will nurse her, but you have to let me marry her." And he nurses her, and of course, he nurses her back to health. And then the father says, "Ha! I just said that so you would nurse her, right? You're not really going to get to marry her." But then the boy falls sick with with it, with a uh, with a um, with the, with the same contagious disease or, or the different contagious disease, and no one agrees to nurse him. But she, of course, says, "Well, he nursed me. I have to." I have to nurse him, and now they really fall in love, and the parents right, and the parents threaten to cut her off, and now we have a debate about you know about how much money he owes the couple, and you know it's not a, such a the, the details of the case are not so are not what matters legally. It's really you know it's a question of whether he, he promised or not. But the story is fascinating, and there's so there are enough cases like this in the Chavayir year that you have to wonder whether um, whether he wrote the cases because it was an outlet, right? It was a way of writing. Of writing a kinds of fiction, for lack of a better word, imaginative, uh, imaginative narrative um, that he didn't otherwise have an option. There is a wild opinion that claims that he was argue, that he was that he had an ideological purpose in arguing for romantic love 
as opposed to arranged marriage, I find that unconvincing because as I found other cases, and the other cases are not about that. So I don't think that can be it at all. Uh, so the other possibility is Rabbi Savitz um, told a great story. And this was his occasion to write the story well. Maybe he just enjoyed telling great stories. Uh, he did write, you know, wonderful Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.